0: sent us, to help expand the work of Christ the King globally. And so thank you. Thank you for letting us be part of you, and thank you for sending us um, to be able to share the gospel with the people, especially young people of Japan. This morning we're going to look at Psalm chapter 16 together. I'm going to get my timer out so that I don't go too long. If I can find it, there it is. And as you turn into Psalm 16, um, you could just open to the middle of your Bible if you're not familiar. um, And usually you'll be pretty close, just thumb over a few pages. You'll get to Psalm 16. It's also printed in your bulletin if you want to read it from there. Um, But as we're reading Psalm 16, I, I want you to think about this question What do you need refuge from this morning? What is it that's causing you anxiety? What trouble are you facing? What's feeling heavy on your shoulders as you walk in here this morning? What is it in your life that's sending you in search of comfort or a safe place to hide or security or peace? Maybe it's a really big thing, disease, uh, problems at work, problems in your marriage. Maybe it's a really small thing. In this passage this morning, uh, David is facing something. We don't know exactly what it is, but he's looking for a refuge. So if you came to church this morning thinking that you needed to have it all together, let me put you at ease. Because here we have the man who is called the man after God's own heart. And he's struggling to trust God. He's struggling to believe Him. He's wrestling with problems in his life. Sometimes as Christians we think... We're not supposed to have troubles because we're Christians, and then we feel embarrassed about the troubles that we have, and we hide, and we come into church, and we sit, and we leave, and we don't talk about them. But I want you to know that CTK is a place where you're free to struggle. So this morning, what is it that's burdening you? And the question is, what do you do with that struggle, with that burden? Where do you turn? Let's read um, Psalm chapter 16 and see what David does. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we walk in with all kinds of stuff on our minds and on our hearts, and um, it's heavy. And it threatens to distract us and to keep us from hearing good news. But God, we desperately need to hear what your word has to tell us this morning. And so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to cut through all the mess, all the noise, and that he would work in our hearts, that we would know Jesus, that we would find our hope and our rest in Jesus, that we would be encouraged by the good news of what he's done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. So as we look at this passage, there are just three things I want us to think about. You can see them printed in your bulletin. If you want to take notes there, feel free. In the midst of trouble and worries and doubts, David does three things, and there are three things that we can copy him in, three things that we can do as well. Number one, he runs to God. Number two, he rests in God's sovereignty. And number three, he rejoices in God's salvation. So he runs to God, he rests in his sovereignty, and he rejoices in his salvation. First, David runs to God. Because in the midst of the craziness of life, we all have to run somewhere, right? I uh, went to Hilton Head this last week with my in-laws, and we went to a place called Harbortown. Has anybody ever been to Hilton Head before? Been to Harbortown? If you have, maybe you're familiar with a guy named, hold on, I'll get it, Greg Russell. He's a guy who stands under this big, huge oak tree called the Liberty Tree. Every single night of the week except for Sunday, and he plays music. He writes a lot of children's songs. I don't even know where that came from. I'll leave it there. Maybe not. I'll put it under here. So he writes music. He's playing children's songs, and it's free. So, of course, we as missionaries have to go to it. It's obligatory. Uh, so we show up, and we're having a good time. He's making jokes. He's singing songs. But then we see thunderclouds that start to appear in the background. And he stops, and he makes an announcement. Guys, if it starts raining, if it's just a little bit of rain, we're going to be fine. We can just stay here. But if there's a lot of rain, then the PA system's going to be- get wet, and we're going to have to pack it up. And especially if there's lightning, what we need to do is we need to go, and we need to stand over there, get out from under the old oak tree. Because if lightning strikes the oak tree, then you're going to be in trouble, right? He told the kids, actually, we should all go stand on the side because the adults are always the ones who run under the oak tree when you tell them not to. And we can watch and see if we can find an adult that gets struck by lightning. Uh, so my dad's an ER doctor, and he actually told me a story um, one time of oh, some guys who came in uh, to, the, to the ER, four of them. They were really messed up pretty bad. Um, turns out they were having a barrel fire, and uh, this is something that you do in the South if, for those of you who aren't familiar. You put a fire in a barrel and you stand around it to get warm. And these guys were also drinking some liquor in order to get warm. And they were standing out and it started raining right underneath a big oak tree. And all of a sudden they heard a loud crack and they saw lightning come down and strike the tree. So you know what they did? They ran all in the same direction as quickly as they could. And of course, because they did that, the limb fell and pinned all of them. And so when the ambulance showed up, there were four guys pinned under this huge Oak tree limb. The funny thing is that if they had just stayed where they were, then they would have been fine. Uh, But they went running because we all have to run somewhere. We all have to take refuge in something. And the question this morning is where are you running? When times are tough, where are you running? Uh, Maybe you get home from a hard day of work and you sit down on the couch and you put on a, a game and you have a few beers. Or maybe you sit out on the porch with a couple glasses of wine. Or maybe you hide under your covers and you watch Netflix for the rest of the day. Maybe it's food that you run to to fill you up and to make life easier. Maybe you get distracted on your phone and you just spend hours scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Maybe swiping, swiping, swiping. Maybe your, uh, your thing is retail therapy. When you're having a hard day, you got to go buy something. Something that's going to make you feel prettier. Something that's going to... A nice shiny toy. A better golf club. Maybe you retreat into a fantasy world. Maybe you spend a lot of time looking at pornography. Or maybe your thing is more control. Maybe if you're having a hard time, you got to make sure that your house is clean. Because you need a place when the chaos of life is all around you. There's got to be one place I see some people laughing. Your mom or your dad's like this. There's got to be a place that's clean and safe, right? Or maybe it's your weight. Get on the scale. Check to see how many pounds you've lost. Maybe it's that relationship, if I could just have that. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's your family. But where do you run in times of trouble? All these things that I just mentioned, um, except for the pornography, of course, are not bad things necessarily. But the problem is when these things become ultimate things for us, when these become the places where we find our comfort and our hope outside of God, because we were never made for those things, and they can't fill us up. I learned this uh, pretty quickly about two years into our time in Japan. um, Moving to Japan is the most stressful thing that I've ever done, Japanese is a really hard language. I don't know if you guys have ever um, tried to speak it or listen to it or read any of the three alphabets, but it's really difficult. And it was difficult for me. Um, I was pretty confident I was going to be good at Japanese because I was okay at learning other languages. Um, but it became apparent that that, that wasn't going to be the case. It was going to be a, a long and arduous <laughs> process for me. And, and on top of that, um, we got to Japan, and Reva was 12 months pregnant. So in the middle of language school... 12 weeks pregnant, 12 months, that'd be, that'd be crazy, right? That's like as amazing as a virgin birth or something, I don't know. So anyway, she's 12 weeks pregnant, and so in the middle of language school, we're supposed to be spending all our time and energy studying Japanese, all of a sudden we have this baby, and we don't have family there to help us, right? And then a year and a half later, 16 months later, we find out they're having another baby, Right? And so our world is crazy. We have no support. We have some friends, but it's not the same as being here. A lot of them don't speak our language. We can't connect on a heart level. Um, So in order to try to control the chaos, I did a couple different things. Number one, I used to look at houses a lot. I still do. Whenever I get stressed out, I go online and I look at what houses are for sale. That might sound really weird to you. But to me, it feels like if I can just get out of this space and I can find another space that's clean, with lots of light coming in, and I could decorate it this way, and I could put these things here, and there was enough space for all my friends to be around, and we had a pool probably, (laughs) right? Then life would be better. And so I would spend a lot of time just going by myself, online, looking at houses. Um, I'd spend a lot of time working really hard. Actually, about two years in, we got to a point where my wife came to me and she said, Brooks, you're a workaholic, and this has got to stop. I can't keep living like this. Because what I had done was in order to control the chaos, I had run to work to try to invest myself in that. Because if I could work hard enough, and I could prove myself, and I could show that I was a good missionary, and I could at least be active, even though I couldn't control the results, even if people weren't coming to Christ, people could look at me and say, wow, you're working really hard. You're a good missionary. I had something to hang on to. At the same time, I asked my wife if it's okay to share this, and she said yes, of course. Um, She was dealing with her own set of idols. And it was sort of like these idols were polarizing for us. So I was running to work, and I was trying to get her to help me with work because if we could just get this thing going, then everything would be okay. And she instead was running to the other side and trying to take care of the family, right? And she's got this internal conflict of, I want to be a woman who can work and have a job. She's an incredible counselor. And at the same time, I never want people to think that I'm a wife who doesn't take care of my kids well and doesn't take care of my husband. So she's got this internal conflict going on, and she's trying to do both of those things and make our family perfect. And at the same time, in order to ease the anxiety, she's looking to me saying, Brooks, will you please meet all my needs? Of course, you never say that. But all of a sudden, I started to feel her hands kind of closing around my neck, and it felt strangling because she wanted me to just be everything for her. Have you ever been in that place? It's a bad place to be. And Davis warns us of that here. Look at verses 1 through 4. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But the sorrows of those who run after other gods, another God, shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Here, David is essentially showing us two options. He's looking around him and he's seeing the believers, the holy ones in the land. And he's looking at these non-Christians, these other people who are worshiping other gods and who are um, pouring out drink offerings to them as a means of worship, who are taking their name on their lips and praying to them. And and just like you and me, when you look around, sometimes you look at the non-Christians and the people who are worshiping other gods and you think they're doing better than the rest of us. In fact, actually this obeying God and following God and trusting God thing makes life harder for me because then I got to feel guilt and I got to think about sin because then in my business dealings, I can't just do whatever it takes to get ahead and I'm tired of actually being behind because I'm trying to be faithful. It's a pain in the butt to be a Christian, right? That's how some of us feel. But David says, look, look ahead. He says in a parallel song, in another psalm. he says, I was envying the arrogant, but then I looked and I saw their destiny. Here he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their names on my lips. When it says their sorrows shall multiply here, it's It's kind of the same word, it is the same word in Hebrew that was used when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, right? They thought, God, if I go my own way, and if I ignore you, and I run after other things, I'm going to be happier. And after that, God says, I will greatly multiply your pains in childbirth. Running away from God never brings us the satisfaction that we think it will. Instead, it multiplies. Because on top of your trouble, you have fear. What if I can't hold it all together and keep up this facade? And you have shame. If people knew what I've been doing, what I've been running to, and you have guilt before the God who made you and before whom you will one day stand in judgment. So your sorrows are multiplied exponentially. And David wants to warn us of this. And he says, instead, don't run to those things. Don't worship other gods. Don't even flirt with them. Instead, would you run to God? Verse 2. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you're my Lord, you're my master. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I have no good apart from you. Because David recognizes, look at these other people, their sorrows increase, they multiply. But God himself is goodness. And all good things, all good gifts come from him. Um, so David, uh, so David runs to God instead of from idols, but David also look at the saints in verse three. He also runs to the saints, says they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. David finds great delights in the saints. And I wonder if you see the people of God, look at the people next to you as a great delight or as a burden. Because as we run to God, God knows that it's hard to do it ourselves. We can't do it ourselves. We need other people to run to God with us, right? And that's why He gave the church as a gift to us, to help us. So, in the midst of my wife and I's dysfunction, and our marital problems, and our idols, and our scratching and clawing for something to help us. Um, We decided we got to see a counselor. Um, If we don't see somebody, then we're really going to be in trouble. Because we had gone around to all our friends, and we were kind of telling them a little bit about our problems, and our friends are saying, oh, but y'all are such a sweet couple. Oh, but you guys are so nice. Oh, you love each other so well. Brooks, you're home with the kids a lot, and you help out. You guys are going to be fine. I wish we were more like you. And what we needed was somebody who was going to get in our face and tell us, don't run to those other things. Run to Jesus. And so we found a guy named Jack Howell. Does anybody know Jack? He's a pastor at a church in um, Norfolk at Trinity. And he's the kind of guy, if you go to him for pastoral counseling, that is going to get in your face. He's not going to hide. He's not going to pretend. Uh, I believe he may have even used some expletives when he was talking to me. But he's the kind of guy that you want to have when you know you've got a problem and there's nobody there that's helping you. And you want to run to Jesus and you can't figure out what's going on. Guys, the saints are a gift to the church. The saints are a gift to you. And the holy ones are not the ones who have it all together, not the people who are perfect. It's the people who are set apart by God as his beloved ones. And so we're all running together to God because we're all in need. After we spent time with Jack, we realized that we needed to change our relationships. That Reeve and I obviously weren't delighting in the saints, we weren't gathering people around us. Nobody was speaking into our lives. We were too isolated. And so we went, and we went to our friends. We said, we got to meet with you. we got to do it regularly. we got to get together weekly, and we got to talk about heart stuff. Because I need you. And I bet you need me too. What are you running to? If you're running after other gods... My guess is that you're probably miserable. You thought it was going to help. You thought it was going to satisfy. And it didn't. I know because I'm there. I'm doing it every day, all the time, right? And the little things and the big things. I'm running after other gods. Do you know the good news? That Jesus Christ came down from heaven and lived a perfect life. But then he went to a cross And people put him to death on the cross, and all the wrath and judgment of God was poured out on him. Even though he's perfect, he had never done anything wrong. And the Bible tells us that if we'll put our trust in him, that we can have forgiveness. Because all of God's wrath, and all of God's anger, and all of God's punishment is already poured out on him. Isn't that amazing? Because that means that we're free to be honest about our mess. That we're free to find people and say, hey, I'm really running after other things here. I don't want to. I need help. Right? If you never put your trust in Jesus, maybe today's the day. Stop running to other things. Run to Jesus instead. There is acceptance and there is forgiveness for you. And the God of the universe has his arms out ready and willing to welcome you because all of his wrath has already been poured out on his Son. What would it be like if CTK was the kind of church where we could confess our sins openly to one another? What if we weren't shocked when somebody came out with some big hidden sin that they've had in their life for a long time? How much freedom, how much freedom might there be if we were all running to Jesus together away from idols? Is it possible that our lack of confession and transparency with one another is actually keeping us from enjoying God? Is there anyone in this church who sins you know? The dirty ones. Is there anybody in this church who knows yours? When was the last time you confessed to someone in a way that made your cheeks turn red? I'm not talking about the stuff you share at small groups. Talking about the stuff that really embarrasses you, that makes you feel like a bad person, where the other person has to come to you and say, you're right, you're a sinner, but Jesus Christ has died for you. And before the Father, you are accepted and beloved as a son. What if we had that kind of ministry to each other? What would this church look like? We need to run to Jesus, and we need to run together. But not only do we need to run to God, if we want real comfort and help and peace when we're struggling We also need to rest in his sovereignty. And specifically here, we see that we need to rest in his sovereign plan for us. Because our problem isn't just that we don't run to God when we're in distress. It's that sometimes we're running to him and we're asking him just to take our problems away. Have you ever done that? I do it all the time. Jesus, help me. I got a problem. Take it away. Make it better. God, fix my situation, please, whatever you do. And it's not bad to run to Jesus There's nothing, um, and ask him to take away our problems. There's no, nothing wrong with that on the surface. God tells us to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. He wants to hear about our problems. He tells us to ask him for anything we want. And if it's good, he'll give it to us so we can run to him and we can ask him to help us in the midst of our trouble. And at the same time, what if taking away the problem isn't what's good for us? What about the thing that you prayed for and it stuck around? It's possible to want God to fix your circumstances, but not want God himself. He said, again, it's possible to want God to fix your circumstances, but not to want God himself. And David says that's a danger because there's no safety there. Look at verses 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. He holds my lot. The lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The words here portion, cup, lot, boundary lines, inheritance would have made the original readers of this, the Israelites, think of what? The land of Canaan. It was the inheritance that God had given them because they had been slaves for a really long time in Egypt and they had nothing. And God brought them out, and he brought them into a good land, and he gave them their own space where they could work for themselves. And it was a good land. It was flowing with milk and honey, and he divided it up between all the tribes. And not only that, but he said, every seven years, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have a time where if for some reason you had to sell your land in order to pay a debt, you get it back. Nobody can keep your land from you forever. Now, that's a pleasant inheritance, don't you think? But what David is telling us here is that there's something better than the land. There was actually one tribe in Israel that didn't get land apportioned to them, and it was the Levites. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Levitical priests, indeed the whole tribe of Israel, are to have no allotment or inheritance with Israel. Listen why. Because the Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. I wonder how you feel about that. If all else was taken away, could you be content with God alone? About six years ago, my wife and I um, were trying to have a baby. We were really excited because all of our friends were having babies, right? So of course we need to have a baby. That's what you do. When everybody else starts having babies, and then you start getting a little jealous, right? This person, they just looked at each other, and she got pregnant. How'd that happen? So it took us a little while um, to try to, to be able to conceive, but um, God gave us two babies at the same time, twins. And we were so excited. We were so thankful. And then about... Nine weeks later, after we got back from a vision trip to Japan, we found out that God had taken those babies away. That they had died in the womb. We really wanted those babies. We're really excited about having those babies. And it was really hard for us when God took them away. Actually, I'd probably say that we were shaken to the core. I mean, that was devastating for us. We hit absolute rock bottom. But through that process, one thing that we learned is that our greatest delight, our cup, our portion, had not been God. And we didn't trust him to hold our lot and to plan our lives for us. Our greatest hope and our portion and our cup was having babies when everybody else was having babies. And I don't say that to make light of it because it's not an easy thing. We still grieve. But when things were going well, everything looked fine on the surface. And as soon as we hit rock bottom, we were revealed for who we really were and our hope for what it really was. God could have given us the kids, but not given me himself. He could have given us the gift and we would have missed the giver. But instead in that moment, God gave us what is best, and he met us in a way that we've never been met before. If you've gone through deep suffering, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't talked to somebody who has, it's hard to explain, but they'll tell you. Well, uh, about two years later, like I said, we were on the plane um, over to Japan, and Reva was 12 weeks, not 12 months, pregnant. Um, we had Quinn in November, and then the next April, All of a sudden, we had another one. So God had answered our prayers for a baby. He had given us what we asked for, and then he had given us more. He had given us another one. God's so gracious. You know what my first thought was when I heard we were pregnant with the second one? Uh, God, we're not ready yet. (laughs) Can't we put a little more space in between them? We have a friend, and they have five kids, and every one of them exactly two years apart. I was think that'd be nice, wouldn't it? But now, all of a sudden, we were looking at two kids under the age of two, and I still hadn't learned that I could rest in God's sovereign plan, whether he's taken away the babies or he's given me too many at a time. I still hadn't learned that God was my portion in my cup. Not having babies or not having a certain number or not? I wonder what you're doing or how you're doing at the moment and learning to rest in God's sovereign plan. Is he your portion and your cup? Or are you demanding something from God? Maybe that he give you safety and peace and comfort and security, this refuge by taking away your trouble. Or are you learning? That God himself is your comfort and your peace and your safety and your security in the midst of your trouble. Again, I wonder what it would be like if CTK was a church where we learned to expect suffering. But we also expected that God would meet us and show us himself in the midst of it. What would it be like if we had a culture where we were able to delight in him as our inheritance and trust him to hold our lot? Wouldn't that be refreshing for all of our own There's a lot more here in terms of the. Yeah, I'm about to run out of time, guys. There's a lot more here in terms of um, the sovereignty of God. We can talk about not just God's sovereign plan, but his provision. If you look at verse 7, you can see that he gives us, in the midst of our suffering, his wisdom. And you see verse 8, that he gives us his presence. This is sovereign provision. And David says at the end of verse 8, That God's provision of wisdom and presence with us can help us to stand firmly inwardly even when everything else around us is shaking. And that's really good news for people like us who live in the earthquake capital of the world. Because sometimes we wake up at night and our lights are literally shaking. Our walls are literally pounding. Things are falling off of our bookshelves. And yet God says that in the midst of that, I can have peace and I can have comfort if he is my portion and I trust him to hold my lot if I can rest in his sovereign plan and his sovereign provision for me. Um, I'm going to go a little bit long because i got to get to this last point. I'm sorry, Penny, and I'm sorry, everybody else. Last point is this. Not only are you running to God, not only are you resting in his sovereign provision and plan, if you want to enjoy his safety and his comfort in the midst of your suffering, but finally, in the midst of the trouble, we see that David rejoices in God's salvation. Verse 9. He says, Therefore, my heart is glad... And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. Therefore, because I have made the Lord my refuge, he's going back to the beginning. My tongue rejoices. My whole being rejoices. And the image that I get is of my little dog. He's got a tiny little tail. He's a small uh, miniature poodle. But whenever we come home and we open the door, his tail starts going. And then after that, what else starts going? The whole rest of him, And he's like doing this, like freaking out that we came home, right? And I think the image that I have, David's whole being is rejoicing in the midst of this crazy trial that he's facing where his life is being threatened. How, how can you have that? Because verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So what David is saying is that the situation may get so bad that it kills me. But Christians have this hope, that even after death, God won't abandon me. God will never abandon you. If you're trusting in his son, because he loves him too much, and he loves all those who are his sons. So do we look at death as the end? Or as a Christian, can we look at death maybe as the beginning? Because how many years do we get here? 80 maybe? Right? Are you spending your time running around, trying to comfort yourself, trying to order things, make life great, and forgetting that there's heaven on the other side? I'd love to explain to you how Peter picks this up and he uses it in his first sermon. In Pentecost, please look at it. It's Acts chapter 2. Paul, in his very first sermon, he uses it. In Acts 13, they expound on it. They show how this points to Jesus. Jesus is the only one whose body never saw corruption, right? David was in a grave and his body rotted. But somehow, I don't understand exactly what David's seeing, but somehow he's seeing Jesus, the one whose body never saw corruption. He's looking forward to that time when it would happen. Guys, we can look back and see that Jesus died and he's already risen from the dead. That's our hope. He's the first fruits. If Jesus has risen and your hope is in him, there's a day when you will also rise again. Isn't that something awesome to rejoice in? Why don't we do that? Why don't we celebrate that enough? This life is not all there is. So you make a deal with me. Will you run with me? Will you run with me to Jesus in the midst of your suffering? Will you help me to rest in the sovereign plan and provision of God when I'm not getting what I want? Will you help me rejoice more in the hope that we have that Jesus has died and risen and if you're trusting in him, this is not the end no matter what life throws at you. Will you help me with that? Let's pray. God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We need you Um, we're so thankful for Jesus that in him we can find forgiveness and in him we can find life everlasting. The only thing that we can count on beyond the grave to never let us down. Would you help us to believe that by the power of your Holy Spirit in Jesus name. Amen.